Bears chewing on the wires again. Damn bears. <laughs> Constant problem. That's what you get living in Yellowstone. <laughs> Jellystone. Jellystone. There we go. Yeah. Yeah. Don't rub your food on the wires. <laughs> <laughs> Good advice for life. This episode is sponsored by Hired.com. Every week on Hired, they run an auction where over a 1,000 tech companies in San Francisco, New York, and L.A. bid on Ruby developers, providing them with salary and equity up front. The average Ruby developer gets an average of 5 to 15 introductory offers and an average salary offer of $130,000 a year. Users can either accept an offer and go right into interviewing with the company or deny them without any continuing obligations. It's totally free for users, and when you're hired, they give you a $2,000 signing bonus as a thank you for using them. But if you use the Ruby Rogues link, you'll get a $4,000 bonus instead. Finally, if you're not looking for a job but know someone who is, you can refer them to Hire to get a $1,337 bonus if they accept the job. Go sign up at Hire.com slash Ruby Rogues. Snap is a hosted CI and continuous delivery that is simple and intuitive. Snap's deployment pipelines deliver fast feedback and can push healthy builds to multiple environments automatically or on demand. Snap integrates deeply with GitHub and has great support for different languages, data stores, and testing frameworks. Snap deploys your application to cloud services like Heroku, DigitalOcean, AWS, and many more. Try Snap for free. Sign up at snapci.com slash rubyrogues. This episode is sponsored by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean is the provider I use to host all of my creations. All the shows are hosted there, along with any other projects I come up with. Their user interface is simple and easy to use, their support is excellent, and their VPSs are backed on solid-state drives and are fast and responsive. Check them out at DigitalOcean.com. If you use the code RubyRogues, you'll get a $10 credit. Hey, everybody, and welcome to episode 232 of the Ruby Rogues podcast. This week on our panel, we have Avdi Grimm. Blue from Tennessee. Coraline Ada Emke. Hi. Saran Yitbark. Hey, everybody. Jessica Kerr. Good morning. I'm Charles Maxwood from DevChat.tv, and this week we have a special guest, Eric Normand. Hi, everybody. I'm calling from dark and stormy New Orleans. Uh, do you want to give us an introduction? Uh, sure. Why not? My name is Eric Normand. I'm currently a closure programmer at a company called Democracy Works. I also have a company on the side that I run called Lispcast, and uh, I publish the Closure Gazette. Uh, I do a lot of uh, educational courses on closure and functional programming, and I'm really happy to be here. You're a busy guy. Yeah, tell me about it. (laughs) (laughs) Do you have kids, too? I have one daughter. Yeah, she's three. Just turned three this weekend. Luckily, kids are no big deal at three years old, right? Just super easy. (laughs) Oh, yeah. This is, yeah. Give them a peanut every now and then, and everything's fine. (laughs) (laughs) I I barely hear about her. She just takes care of herself. (laughs) That independent age. Yeah, you just put kids on autopilot, right? Yeah. They, Auto-parent. Auto-parent. There's a setting in the back. Most people don't know. There's like a switch. <laughs> <laughs> so what are we talking about today? The topic on the docket is teaching and how we can all do more to teach technical topics. I take right. it Eric has some opinions about this. Yes, I do. Uh, I hope they're strong enough. I think that there's a lot of really smart people in our community and the tech community and programming. And uh, they know all these awesome topics and they have all this deep expertise. But what disappoints me 
is the level of teaching skill that we have in our community. And I was just watching a talk by uh, Uncle Bob, where he talked about how the reason there aren't so many older programmers is that the number of programmers doubles every five years, which means at any given time, half of the programmers in the world have less than five years of experience. Oh, wow. So we have this desperate need to teach people very quickly so that we're not just building like legacy software every five years. I have to say that I keep hearing people say, oh, well, there was this, there were all these breakthrough things written 20 years ago and nobody knew about them. And then we're rediscovering them. Is that part of this issue that you're talking about here where That's... the old guard knew about it, but the new guard doesn't because we don't have enough people teaching them about it? That is something that concerns me, but you know, I actually don't experience that. I have known a couple of old programmers and the ones I knew didn't seem to say like, oh, we knew it all back then and, and kids these days just don't get it. It's more that the, the reason we don't see those things nowadays is that they were impractical on the computers of the day. And you know, you needed more memory, you needed faster processors, better networking. And so now when, that we have those things, we're kind of rediscovering them. Um, also, there was a lot of funding for computer research, basic computer research that we don't see anymore. The government is just not, the military mostly is not spending the money on those basic things. What I'm really interested in is the sort of fundamentals. I always like teaching the fundamentals because it feels like I'm churning through all this like muscle memory, deep seated knowledge that I don't really have a good grasp on. It's just some expertise that I've got deep down inside that I've been doing for 10 or 15 years. And I can finally like bring it up to the surface and like clean it off and organize it well and show people uh, what is actually possible. And hopefully get them to leapfrog into, uh, you know, uh, more expertise. How do you think we're teaching those fundamentals today and what's wrong with that? Oh, that's a really good question. And I don't want this to sound like a lot of complaining, but I'm pretty sure it will. Um, <laughs> Old man shouts at cloud computing. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> I'm a big fan of Kathy Sierra. I remember when she was blogging and she had a lot of great posts about how we're inadequate with our teaching. I think I would characterize most of it as really smart people just talking about stuff they know. You know, there's kind of a rule of thumb that like the best person to teach something is someone who just learned it. And that kind of bugs me because the reason they're the best is because they don't have teaching skills. And so they can just talk about what they just learned and someone who is just there ready to learn it, who's right below their level in that particular skill, can pick it up because they're, you know, they're right there. The act of teaching is to actually break that down so that anybody could learn it you know, given the right prerequisites, et cetera. And so that's, that's really the problem I see is that people just talk about what they know. They don't take the time to break it down, to figure out a motivation for why you would want to learn it. They don't present activities that would let you build the skills in yourself. And those are the three things that really help somebody learn is so I have I have a bit of classroom teaching experience and these are the things that they taught us that you really have to 
break down the skill. You can never really get granular enough. It's just at some point it becomes impractical to start teaching people how to like reach for a pencil and like write by holding the pencil in a certain way. But you could break it down that far. You just said there were three things. Could you do a one, two, three on those? Sure. Uh, The first one is to figure out why they need to learn it. So you kind of start with the end in mind. Give something in their life that would be different, that would be better if they had this skill. The next thing is to break the material down into learnable objectives. And any skill can be broken down. Some of the things you're going to break down are like physically, like type at the keyboard, this thing, right? But some of them are going to be purely decisions. Like, how did I make this decision? Let's say you wanted to teach how to figure out if a number is even or odd, right? So you could sit there and do it yourself, right? I mean, in a program, right? So you can write this program and then go through line by line or or expression by expression and figure out why did I write that? What was the decision that I was making? Because there was there were other choices. Why did I open parentheses here? Why did I put a comma? Why did I do a method call, etc.? And you break those down into some learnable chunks. Maybe your audience already knows those chunks and you can maybe just remind them or make sure that they know it by testing them a little. But you want to get to a level where you're pretty sure you can teach each of those chunks. Okay, and then the last thing is to align the activities that you do with the actual learning objectives. So this classic example, when I was learning how to teach in a classroom, the classic example was a teacher who has the objective of getting kids to understand what caused the American Revolution. And what she did was she made a crossword puzzle or a word search of all the important facts and names and and places. And those two aren't really aligned. You're not going to learn, you might learn how to spell names and learn that George Washington was important in the American Revolution, but you're not going to understand, you just know the fact of his name. And so that's very important when when we're teaching. I, I see this a lot where Someone will simply give the syntax of the language, which is purely facts, right? Uh, It's not understanding. And then the next step is, now let's write a web service in this. And there's this huge jump that has to be made by the learner. And these techniques of breaking it down and then determining an appropriate aligned activity for those objectives can actually give you a path between the simple knowledge of where to put your parentheses and your curly braces all the way to how do you go about designing your models, your views, and your controllers. Eric, if I'm understanding you correctly, you seem to be indicating that people who teach developers need to have a teaching background. And I can't help thinking of CS programs that do employ teachers with actual training on pedagogy, whereas boot camps tend to employ developers. But in my experience, a lot of CS graduates are not really prepared for real world work. So where's the gap there? We have kind of a reverse problem of what happens in elementary school. Just to play off of your idea, like in elementary school, what happens is everyone is like uh, has a master's degree in teaching, but they don't have a math degree. They don't have an English degree. So the problem there is they're really good at teaching, but they're not domain experts. And that's a real shame. We sort of have the opposite problem is that you can become a professor of 
computer science by getting a PhD and doing some a postdoc. So you're you're very deep in your knowledge, but then when you come to teach, you might not have had any formal training in in how to teach. I know that a lot of my professors were like that. They were super smart, but you had to do the work. And especially in college, we do expect the students to be doing most of the work. So when you talked about what it means to be a good teacher and the three steps, it sounds very logical and very straightforward. So why is it so hard to actually be a good teacher? That's a really good question. I think it does take a lot of work. And I think, I mean, I don't, I don't like to talk about like people's egos getting in the way, but one of the things is we don't, when as just naturally as humans, we don't tend to focus on the learner, the person we're trying to teach. It becomes very easy to just think about yourself and how you look and making sure that you look smart and sound smart. There's a lot of pejorative terms like, oh, you're dumbing it down or you're oversimplifying it. And those terms, you know, maybe you're, you're not oversimplifying it. You're just breaking it down and you're giving it in chunks that someone can understand. And people who do make sort of more basic books, they aren't given as much credibility. I mean, if, if you look at someone who writes like some how to do machine learning in Ruby, right? Some like high level concepts in a popular language, they're going to get to go on the conference circuit, right? But if you have someone who's just like, here's a really good solid course on basic Ruby that anybody could pick up uh, walk through by themselves and become a competent beginner. They're not going to get the same accolades that someone who wrote this book that no one understands gets. So I guess I guess that's one thing that I, I see here is that a lot of people are coming in through, say, the boot camps where they actually get some kind of traditional looking training. And then you have other people coming in that are self-taught and you mentioned maybe they pick up a course that explains things really well. Do the tr teaching styles vary from one to the other? Is one better than the other? For example, if I'm teaching somebody in person, I'm going to approach things in one way because I know that they can ask clarifying questions. They, you know, I can look over their shoulder while they're doing the work and correct them as needed versus the person who is picking up a course that I wrote. So the teaching styles have to be a little bit different. Uh, just because uh, right. the media is different. So is there a way of knowing that one is going to be better for a new programmer than another? That is a really good question. It's something I struggle with uh, myself in my own courses. Um, I was trained, like I said before, in the classroom learning style. And the nice thing about that is you get very fast feedback. You know, you can see if your students are learning, if they're getting it right away. And you can move on quickly. You can slow down if they're not getting it. And even, okay, so this was a total waste. It was way over their head. Tomorrow I'm coming in and it, we're going to go deeper. I'm going to break it down further. And you can do that much more iteratively. And so that's the what you get in these boot camps is the fast feedback. The teachers can adapt very quickly. One of the challenges I face with my courses uh, is that, you know, they take three months to do. And I don't know <laughs> if they're going to, who they're going to target really. Like, I don't know what the audience knows. And uh, I have to do a lot of assumptions, a lot of research, figuring out like, am I answering questions that people are actually asking? That kind of thing, which is why I'm kind of transitioning away from longer courses into shorter 
lessons and get a lot of feedback, hopefully get a lot of questions, that kind of thing. I totally agree with Chuck's point because I, I taught organic chemistry for a couple of years, which is notoriously a, a very you know, tough science course. And I think that one of the biggest skills that I used while doing it was listening to that feedback and making sure to, you know, pivot and change directions and modify what I did um, you know, to, to benefit my students. And when I had to write a tutorial for that online, it was so much harder because I had no idea at what point the reader was able to follow, at what point they fell off. And so for a lot of people listening who I assume are doing more of that style of teaching, whether it's writing a blog post or giving a talk and aren't necessarily in a classroom, what are some things that they can do to get that feedback or simulate that feedback to make sure that they are doing a good job teaching? It does help that you have previous experience teaching that material. You know, even uh, if you gave a one-hour talk at a meetup, you would be able to see, do these ideas, are they over someone's head? What were the questions like? That kind of thing. The other thing is to pick someone you know. That is really helpful. Just pick someone you know and make them sort of the ideal prototype of what you're, of who you're teaching. And maybe you could just have a conversation with them. Try to teach it to them on the phone and see where they have trouble, see where they have gaps in their knowledge that you could fill in. All those things, get the feedback and try to then cement it into some artifact like a course or a tutorial. And then, of course, you got online. Online, you can get plenty of feedback. So if I put together a course, let's say it's a course on Rails, just because this is a Ruby podcast, and it teaches some of the fundamental building blocks of a Rails app. So we're going into basic active record, basics with controllers and views. And I put a course together and I break it up. I, I like breaking it up into smaller modules. So it's like, look, did you get mastery of this one thing? And then if they have an issue with another one thing, then it's not so intimidating to move on to the next thing because you may or may not be building on what came before, but it's another just one thing that you can get hung up on or not hung up on. But let's say that I'm doing that. How do I get that feedback? Do I want to be putting some kind of feedback form on the page next to the video or, you know, a comment section? If it's text, is there a comment section? I mean, I, I can see different media too, like eBooks where, you know, you may or may not actually be able to put that right in front of them and say, hey, I really want to know what you thought or what was easy and what was hard and how to get that. I don't have like a very good answer myself. Uh, I have a forum that I hope people ask questions. People ask me questions by email. What I'm doing in my new course, which just launched, is on every page next to the video, I'm putting a link to the forum. And in every communication, I say, I prefer you to ask in the forum because other people can benefit from the answer. And so I'm hoping that that will be enough feedback. I do get quite a lot of questions by email. And unfortunately, what I've done in the past is because the course took three months to make and then I just kind of release it to the world. Um, when I would get a question that wasn't answered, I would have to just answer it in the email. And just that one person benefited and I couldn't change the course. Now that I'm doing sort of a weekly lessons, I'm hoping, you know, I just started, I'm hoping that people ask questions and then that will give me a, enough material for the next lesson and address questions that way. 
Speaking of questions, Chuck, you said something earlier that I found really interesting about how when we are teaching in person, we expect people to ask clarifying questions. That's a responsibility of the learners in a live course. And I think that's challenging for some people. Mm -hmm. Not everyone feels comfortable interrupting and asking a question. So on the one hand, uh, some people who are less comfortable asking questions might be better off with uh, online courses. But on the other hand, for our listeners, when you're in that situation, when you're in a workshop, say, or a boot camp, or even a meeting at work, it's not only okay for you to ask questions, it's your responsibility. That's a really good point. If you want to learn, you know, you have to deal with the inadequacies of the teacher, I guess. is, is <laughs> You know, you're, you're there to absorb as much as possible, make as much use of the time in front of the teacher as you have. And that's how, for instance, I've always gone through school is people would always like get mad at me because I would ask too many questions and talk to the teacher directly <laughs> too much in class. And like, I'm bored. I need to engage myself here. But who sorry. would get mad at you? I'm oh, okay. other students. Cause they'd be like, oh, oh okay. you're so pedantic. You're asking all these little detailed questions. And I was going to fall asleep if I didn't start talking. So that's what I did. I do think that there are techniques that the teacher can use to engage the students And when the students are awake and participating, you get a much more feedback. You're getting much more information from back from the students. And if you've really prepared your material, like you've broken it down, you can tell I shouldn't be able to move on if they can't answer this question, right? And it's part of the preparation for your course. I want to give a a concrete example. If you want to teach about how to identify angles, I'm sure that a large portion of the audience has had to like name an angle ABC based on the three vertices of the segments. But you can tell if someone can do that by saying, well, can you even identify where the angle is in this diagram, right? You can ask that question. It's a quick question. Maybe they get it. You just move on. If they don't, then you have to say, "Uh uh-huh, you can't even find the angle. So let's get up on the board and start tracing this angle and you you can always break it down more and you shouldn't move on if they can't do that you're not going to be able to say oh that's angle abc if they can't even find it on the board saran you have teaching experience as well do you have any techniques that you've used to help people feel comfortable asking questions or to find out whether they're following along yeah i ask questions that i'm 90 percent sure everyone already has an answer to. So, you know, if it's something like just in the very, very beginning of the class, I'll ask, you know, just very obvious questions that everyone kind of looks at each other and they're like, she knows the answer to this, right? You know, and they kind of like look at each other uncomfortably, but then they get in the habit and in the flow of answering questions and they start to grow in confidence. So when I get to the point where it's like a real question or a tricky question, they've already developed this habit of ask of answering me and they've developed trust that I'm not going to make them feel stupid and I'm not going to talk down to them and I expect a dialogue. So that's what I try to do very, very early on in the session. I really like that. Is there a way to do that if you aren't in front of people? So if you're in a video or an ebook, can you ask some question, like questions that they can just answer to themselves? Do you think that works as well? In my courses, what I try to do is always get someone to produce something. It's easy to say, oh, I answered that. I know the answer when you haven't even formulated it in a sentence. 
So it could be type something into a box or write down a sentence. But yeah, I, I, I want them to be engaged. I don't want them to be just listening. I, I think that, Saran, what you said is, is great. Get them in the habit of answering easy questions that gets their guard down so they start answering the hard ones. Even if they have to guess, it's better than silence. Another cool technique if you are in a classroom setting is to ask a question and then not call on people until you get a lot of hands, right? So often it's easy, you're kind of nervous, there's a silence and you're, you're wondering, are people even paying attention? And so you just kind of like want the first person to answer and, and you move on. But wait, just let people think for a little bit and um, you'll get the people who are less, uh, less quick to raise their hands, to start raising their hands. And then when you call on them, don't give a non-committal answer. Just say, okay, thank you. And call on another person and let them tell their answer. And then you say, thank you. And you move on to the next person. And so you can get a lot of people answering the same question. People can hear the variety of responses. They can modify their answer from what they've heard other people say. And it really helps engage more people. You know, if you have a class of 30 people and one person answers, you're getting into this habit of like people waiting for that one smart person to raise their hand first. Uh, and that's not what you want. You want to create this. I mean, Saran, it's, it's a great way to say it. It's, it's a habit that the class all has to participate or we're just going to sit here and wait. I love that. One of the things that I also do, because for organic chemistry, there's a lot of chemical reactions that you have to map out. And it generally takes a little bit of time to have an answer anyway. So I'll say, you know, let's take two minutes. Everyone pull out a piece of paper, you know, brainstorm, talk to your neighbor, and we'll take answers in a bit. So there's this expectation that everyone's going to work on it. Everyone's going to be engaged and you're giving everyone a chance, not just the few people who always have their hand up. Yeah, that's awesome. So. I kind of want to go into a little bit more of the why. I mean, we talk, we've talked a lot about the how and how to engage audiences and how to engage classrooms and how to engage people through other media. And what I really want to dig into is we have a lot of people that come in through different methods and, and media. So, for example, we've talked about the boot camps and we've talked about video courses and things like that. And then you just have people that come in and they're like, I want to build a website. I'm going to learn Ruby on Rails. They go and they kind of pick up a video here or video there and they self-teach and they look on Stack Overflow, et cetera, et cetera. And it sounds like, Eric, one of your concerns is that they're coming in and they're kind of learning these techniques without actually knowing any of the fundamentals of programming or understanding why we do some things the way we do some things. And so I'm wondering, eventually a lot of these folks wind up to be competent programmers. They may not be able to articulate to you the fundamentals, even though they perform them well. Is that a problem? And should we be teaching these people? And why should we care? Okay, that's a, a really good question. So is it a problem in itself, you know, that there's a lot of work out there for programmers? A lot of it is... I mean, I would say pretty menial. It's building websites, you know, three-page website. It's the same same over and over. Maybe it differs in the design. Why not have untrained people work on that? I don't think that's a problem. But what I prefer, what I focus on is more of a, a view that a rising tide lifts all boats, that having a more educated community, a more educated population is just better for everybody. And I feel like 
my mix of skills and my interests can help that in, in a small way. I think that there's a, a lot of fundamental stuff in programming that I use all the time that I'm very grateful to have. I'm privileged to have an advanced degree in computer science. And I don't think that the concepts are beyond people. So I, I feel like, you know, in a kind of a democratic ideal, I feel like all programmers could know this stuff and it just hasn't been presented in the right way or people just haven't had the opportunity to learn them. And I just want to do my part to bring that to people. Do you think there's an order of operation that's important? you think we should be teaching fundamentals first and then the practical skills that build on top of them? Is it too late if you've gone to a boot camp and just learned you know, the magical incantations to type to turn something into a web service? Or you know, is there a problem there? No, I don't, I don't think it's ever too late. You do pick up habits. And I have a lot of bad habits because I learned programming on my own. I think that might be, to kind of stray from your point a little bit, I think that might be one of the bigger issues is that a lot of people that are in programming today didn't need a classroom setting. They didn't need an, a formal education. They just learned on their own. And that leads to this insular nature of our, of our community that we respect the people who could kind of just figure it out and don't need to talk to other people and don't need to um, help other people learn. They don't see the value in that. I didn't have that. So why would other people need that? You know, I think that part of the ideal of education is that you can pass everything down. You can pass everything to other people. You can help others. You can you sort of pull everybody up. You know, you can climb up to the top of the wall and you can reach down and help other people. How much of it is on teachers to sort of understand what the baseline of understanding is? Is there a problem there that we're not really recognizing where students are in their progress or their understanding of fundamentals? Yeah, I, I would say that the problem is more that we're lazy, but, you know, everybody. And so we see that there are some students who sort of maybe already know it, right? Because they've been working on their own. Uh, I listened to this really great NPR radio bit about why there were so few women in computer science. And their conclusion basically was that in the 80s, personal computers were marketed to boys, as something you could like play your video games on. So they told the story of this woman who she eventually got like, you know, an advanced degree in, in engineering or something, but she was in computer science and it was the first class of the first 101. And the professor was like, you don't know that already. Like you, you don't belong here. And wow. she was the only woman. And the reason that she didn't know it was she didn't grow up with a computer and because they were for boys and she didn't spend, you know, hours a day tinkering with it. And so I think that the bigger issue is people being lazy. They just teach to the 90% of the class who had a computer since they were young and they probably programmed in basic or, you know, made some web pages or something and just say, I don't need to go deeper. I don't need to, so, you know, it's not about fundamentals. It's simply like, that we just haven't had to talk about how to type, how to close your parentheses, how to put a semicolon at the end of your line. Like those things are assumed knowledge, even at the first course in college. Uh, I, I have a quick follow up to this because I think it is uh, relevant to the discussion of teaching, though. What if this had been sort of an advanced class 
And I don't want to turn this into a feminism issue. I, I We do need to cater to everybody coming in despite their experience or level or wherever they're at. But say this was an advanced course where the expectation was that you actually would have that. It's not the entry level class. Would that be an appropriate response then to a student who didn't seem to have all the requisite knowledge to be in the class? Yeah, I, I do think that you need prerequisites in, in courses. Can I challenge for- that for a second? Sure. Yeah, please. I just want to say, I'm not sure that I could see that being grounds for like an after class discussion, teacher student discussion. But um, this kind of this kind of public shaming, no matter how, quote unquote, warranted, you know, in the circumstances, somebody managed to find themselves in a place that they're not that they don't seem to be qualified for. You know, number one, I don't think it accomplishes anything. And it's probably, you know, even if it maybe was somehow I cringe at warranted, but even if it was somehow warranted for that person, I guarantee you five other people in that class heard it and clamped shut on, on some questions they were going to ask. For sure. Yeah. For sure. And the words, you, know, it, you do not belong here, are never appropriate. Mm. Yeah, I think, yeah. Just generally speaking, I think that's absolutely right. Mm-hmm. Um, so the appropriate response would be to take them aside after class and say, you know, programming 101 is a prerequisite for this course or something like that. You know, or just just like get a better f- feel for like where they're coming from, why they seem to be coming into this unprepared and see if you can find a way to help them. Okay. But not in a not in a way that just shuts them down potentially for the rest of their career and also has has ripple effects to the, you know, the rest of the class. Yeah, I, I have to agree with you. I think that that's true. Yep. Thank you so much for bringing it up, Abdi. I think we do so much social damage to people who are entering our industry through unthoughtful actions like that. I think that's something we definitely need to address. Just in general. So like I run into the situation regularly, you know, where somebody has holes, like big weird holes in their knowledge. I mean, I had a weird educational background that I'm not going to go into here, but it resulted in me having all these, like all this advanced knowledge in some areas and then holes in other areas that, you know, could have caught someone by surprise and made them think that, that I was completely unprepared for where I was. And then like, I, I dropped into a uh, programming position at a, the, this big contractor that had all kinds of like terminology and TLAs that everybody knew. And, you know, I could easily have come across as, you know, Avdi clearly doesn't belong here. And yet, you know, years of doing great work there, I I clearly did belong there. So it's, I don't know, it's just, it's not always it's not always a cut and dried case when somebody has a question like that, that, you know, that they don't belong there. It may just be that they, by some accident, have you know holes in their education. So assuming that's the case, I want to press this because I want to make sure that I understand it and that our listeners understand it. So in that case, what questions should we be asking so that we can accurately assess where people are and help them where they're at? I think it all goes back to your preparation so I talked about breaking down your um, your material. You're doing this task analysis. Each of those uh, objectives that you've pinpointed can be further expanded, and you can see sort of the whole structure of knowledge of what needs to be known to be able to do this task, at least in the way that you want to teach it. And so those often, if you just turn it into a question become or like a challenge to the class, they become feedback mechanisms, right? So to understand where the class is, just sort of like how I said, you know, I'm going to teach how to name an angle, uh, given the, the, the three points, but first can you even find the angle on the board, 
right? Like that kind of thing is very common in classrooms. And, you know, you can do that for any material, but you do need to have everything broken down. There's an opportunity here for the students to teach the teacher something because we think fairly often about like known unknowns and unknown unknowns. But this is a case of where the teacher has unknown knowns. There's things that I know that I don't remember learning because it was a while ago. And I don't realize that that's something that, no, it's not common sense. Uh, It's not built in. It's it's something I know. And it's something I need to teach, but I don't know that until somebody asks me the question. So often the right response is to say, oh, I didn't realize I already knew that. Thank you. And then (laughs) you can change the course material. Yeah, that's a really good point. I'll tell a little story. And I was teaching math and I was trying to teach people how to, they were kids, I was teaching them how to um, graph coordinates on a plane. And I could tell that they were just so confused. Like they couldn't do the, the easiest ones, you know, like one, one, like where does that go? And what I realized was that there were like 10 new things that they're trying to learn at the same time. They had never seen a coordinate plane with axes. They had never seen a number line. They had never seen a coordinate pair written that way and know that the first one is the x-axis and the second one is the y-axis and that the x-axis is the horizontal. Like there's so many things that they didn't know. And I was confusing them with this, you know, apparently simple task, which was just draw a dot like in one little spot. And I realized, oh, wow, I need to take 10 steps back we need to start just drawing number lines and finding one point on that line, right? We need to talk about uh, not really projections, but, you know, being able to like walk down the number line and then move up from that space, right? And sort of meet where uh, another line would be drawn on the y-axis. And it just there's so many things like that's one of the um, the principles of teaching that you, you need, really need to keep in mind is like you don't want to overwhelm them. Like you've got this great opportunity to teach like in an hour, you want to be teaching one skill. And that depends on their level, what that one skill means. But something that they can learn in that one hour that they can master, that they can get right like over 90% of the time, that's a really important uh, unit to be thinking about. And so if you notice that they're confused, it usually means that they've got way too much to think about. And so if you can step it back and, you know, you can say, you know, you might give someone a task in a workshop, hey, let's write some method calls and when we'll chain them together and they're, you know, you just see that, wow, this is too much for them. You know, you could just get down to basics like, okay, let's just find all the method calls in this code, right? Or let's write one method call. Let's, with no arguments, right? And then you add arguments and you you start to build up the skills that they need. And then you just practice it over and over because you need to be able to get to a mastery level in that hour or, you know, you can repeat the lesson and get it in a few times. Hearing this approach makes me despair of a boot camp ever being able to prepare a student for actual development. 
How you long want, is a boot camp? Like three weeks? Twelve weeks. Oh, twelve weeks. It's it's funny. And we've all seen the graph of things you have to learn to be proficient at Rails. It's this huge spider web graph. And if you're teaching fundamentals like that, like, you know, going over making sure people really understand what a method call looks like and how to write one, I don't see how you could ever create ever complete that in twelve weeks. I'm gonna push this button. How long should it be? I mean, how how long legitimately do you think it would take? To do a boot camp to yeah, teach to someone teach, to do a Rails boot camp and have somebody come out of there to the level of effectiveness that you think they need to have. As I mean, it depends. I mean, are you talking about like an apprentice level, like able to pair? You used the word competent beginner before. I think that's appropriate. So I, I I don't know a year. Like it's it's really hard to say for a number of reasons. I don't know Rails. I do know there's a lot of moving parts in Rails. You have to learn HTTP. Right, you have to understand like this client-server thing. You have to know HTML. These are not easy. What do you think, Coraline? I mean, you brought it up. You know that twelve weeks isn't long enough. I think that we're misleading people with boot camps, honestly, in telling them that they can get you know really great-paying jobs right out of a boot camp, and that they're going to be. I think we're lying to them, honestly, in a lot of ways. I don't think that we're generating a lot of competent beginners. I think for certain people who have a certain baseline of experience already and knowledge um, and are just looking for a formal way to just sort of wrap some of that up, boot camps can be great. But I think we're doing a great disservice to a lot of people by charging them a lot of money and turning out people who aren't really ready for the work that there's ahead of them. Well, you well, probably having... made a whole bunch of people angry. I tend to agree. <laughs> and, and the thing that I'm seeing is the people who come out as that competent beginner or who are capable of picking up a job, Generally, they tend to be the people who are the go-getters who will, after school, so to speak, they go home and they go learn more stuff. You know, they go out and they meet people in the community and they, they kind of do the extra work. Otherwise, most of the people that I talk to, it takes them several months after they graduate to get enough experience on their own to get the job that they thought they were going to get when they graduated. Yeah, yeah I mean, and- having, you know, actually gone through a boot camp myself... I kind of have to agree with you all, you know, so when I did the boot camp, I'd already quit my job and spent three months, you know, in my apartment, 12, 16 hours a day learning to code on my own. So for me, you know, I had that three months and when I was sitting in class learning about, you know, the MVC model and all that, I was hearing it for the third time. You know, it wasn't, I wasn't coming at it completely, you know, unknowledgeable. And even then afterwards, it was still, you know, there was still more to learn. So I think that, the good thing is I think that more people who do boot camps now are not coming at it, you know, sitting down for the first time knowing what Ruby is. I think they have done a lot of research and they're using it more to formalize their education. But I think that the pitch that, you know, you can go from nothing to competent beginner in three months is that's just ridiculous. I want to throw two more ideas on here. One is, is I was really hoping you were chiming in to disagree with us, Saran. Uh, the <laughs> other, the other thing is, is that I do feel like one thing that the boot camps do give to people is they give them confidence. So after three months, they've really seen, I'm smart enough to do this. I'm good enough to do this. I can figure this stuff out. It's like the Wizard of Oz when he gives the Tin Man a diploma. Yeah, <laughs> you do have a brain. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I don't know. I've seen I've seen the opposite of that. I have a channel on IRC called New to Ruby, and I see a lot of people who 
are coming out of boot camps or coming out of a self-learning phase, and then their first job is dealing with legacy code, which is something they have oh. not been prepared for whatsoever. So I think all their confidence goes away in the face of a legacy application. Mm. I mean, I think the other part of that, though, is that I don't think that the industry is really ready for boot camp grads. You know, in order to be successful myself, you know, I did a hacker in residence program for seven months where I had a lot of room to make a lot of mistakes and to learn very quickly and to really own my learning. And then I did the apprenticeship at ThoughtBot, which was, you know, an amazing experience where, again, I was taught best practices and really given a nurturing environment. And I think that, you know, after you graduate boot camp, if you're able to get a junior level position or an apprenticeship position or something where the expectation is, you know, enough to add value, but there's still a lot more that you need, a lot more support you need. I think that's just fine. I think the bigger issue is that there aren't a lot of junior developer positions. There aren't a lot of apprenticeships and internships unless you're, you know, a college CS major. And I think just the lack of support and on-ramps for people who really want to break in and who want to be successful and who are willing to put in the work, I think that's a really huge problem. I think that is an excellent point, and that's exactly where I was going. Um, without that industry-wide support for new people, we're doing lots of people a disservice and costing them a lot of money. I just want to say I agree with everything I've heard, but I just want to put in the perspective that I, I remember watching lots of, of fresh outs from four-year program, four-year computer science programs who had spent way more money and way more time getting to a level that was less proficient than I see people coming out of boot camps with. Don't know how the how that happens, but it did. And you know, I mean, in terms of like, even if a if a boot camp is a total loss, which I I doubt that any of them are a total loss, but I mean, even if it is, it seems like a whole lot less of a loss of time and money than than some of these four year programs. One thing that I think the boot camps can fill in is there are real hurdles, like obstacles that you might not be able to get over on your own. Having someone hold your hand during uh, some of those hard parts uh, could be really helpful. And so even though you do have to work on your own and you do have to study and practice and make a lot of mistakes, there are some really basic things that could just be passed to you that you could, you know, would take you weeks to figure out, but someone could tell you in 10 minutes. And I think that those things, if we could find them and sort of, you know, laser target them, we could do a lot. I really want to ask this because, and, and I want to couch it in terms of teaching because I think that's really what we're talking about here. So after the boot camp, when they're not quite ready, maybe for that junior level job, or maybe they're just having trouble finding that junior level job, is it another learning environment that they need? Or is it something that looks a whole lot more like a job, like an internship? So is it maybe another after boot camp, boot camp or... I mean, it's a, it's a good question. Is there, is, do we as an industry know what people need to know? Would you want to put someone through uh, a kind of, I don't want to say sweatshop, but like a, you know, an apprentice does all the dirty work, right? They like carry the wood for the master and they chop it and they carry the water, that kind of thing. And so maybe there's stuff like that. Like you put, you put your apprentices on, on updating the readme and, you know, monitoring servers and stuff like that. And after a year, they've picked up a little bit of skill here and there just from being surrounded by it. And uh, uh, they see that how the day-to-day -day work actually goes. Ooh, 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 I have a suggestion. Okay. <laughs> um, 
So uh, you you mentioned those questions that can take forever to figure out online because you don't even know what to Google, but answered in 10 minutes. One way to do those is is if you have a mentor, if you have just someone you can call, sometimes it's even hard to identify those questions. But when you do, yeah, I think I think a little bit of personal attention might make a big difference at Lambda Lounge, which is the best user group in St. Louis. Mario Aquino has started a program, he calls it Lambda Mentors, where he's getting companies to sponsor and that pays for the time of experienced programmers to help younger programmers. And the money actually goes to charity. It doesn't go to the experienced programmers. But the idea being, if you just have an hour or two a week uh, with someone much more experienced, you can ask those questions. And then That's maybe really you, cool. yeah, cool. You maybe work on open source projects, but you have someone who can get you unstuck. I have two people that I mentor on a weekly basis, and I like the idea of mentoring quite a bit. But the way I've seen some boot camps handled mentoring is office hours, and there's no guarantee you're going to get the same person two weeks in a row. I think really mentorship is a personal relationship, and if you don't have that personal relationship, you're not going to feel comfortable asking those stupid questions, quote unquote. Yeah, for sure. There's actually a study about mentoring that showed that like lots of companies have mentoring programs because they, you know, they feel like they have to and but the ones that are effective are the ones where there's a personal relationship and they actually become friends, the mentor and the mentee. And if that doesn't happen, they don't really care about each other. They're just going through the motions of having office hours like you were saying. It seems like what we're talking about with uh, with the boot camps and with the lack of pedagogy, is this symptomatic of the tech industry not being willing to make investments but looking for quick solutions to problems? Maybe. Uh, we're, we're, we're young as an industry. Like we, we really don't know. Like if you looked at, for instance, calculus, if you tried to read the first calculus books, they're impossible to understand. I mean, not impossible. I mean, they take a lot of study. You're actually studying like, what did he mean when, when, what did Newton mean when he wrote this? Right. And now you can take a calculus class and there's a book that has, you know, it's a really thick book with everything broken down with all the theorems explained, like a chapter on each theorem with lots of exercises for practice. And that's just one of the textbooks. There's a lot of different books on that. And so we've learned over time, how to teach the material, not in the way that it was discovered, but in the way that helps students. And I think that that will happen in computer science programming and software engineering, where you're actually building the practical stuff. I do think that there is that tendency to think short term where most software companies are like a year old, right? They just got some startup right. funding and they just need to get an MVP out there. They don't care about practices and, you know, all that stuff blows up in their face when they start scaling and they start, start having to think about that. And then they have to hire real engineers to come in and, and figure the stuff out. And so at, at no point was there ever, you know, this gradual process of, getting someone new uh, all the way up to that point where you're hiring the 300,000 half a million dollar a year engineer to scale your app. We just don't know how to do it. They just, we just find them, you know, you put out a job with a lot of money behind it and they, they appear, but we don't know how to build that person. 
I want to hit mentorship here for a second. I want to just hark back to that real quick and just talk about it. A, how do you find the right people to mentor? In other words, people who will fit your style and fit the way that you approach problems and fit the way that you kind of explain topics. And then the other thing is, is how do you open yourself up so that people can find you if you're willing to mentor people? Yeah, that's a, a really good question. So I've teach on my blog, my main technique, my main secret is to like go on a forum like Stack Overflow and find a question and answer it on my blog. Uh, in IRC, if someone had a question, I'll just write it on my blog and then find the person again and, and show it to them. And by focusing on real questions, like in the same language that they asked, I think that that builds trust. The people, they want more of what you have. The, the people who want it will find you. A lot of people will not like your style and that's fine. Um, but the people who like your style will, will find you. So blogging, answering questions that people post in public forums. I think that's the, that's the answer. I'd like to, to circle back around a bit um, to something you talked about earlier, because it's something I have a lot of interest in, which is the way that there are a lot of programmers with the, a great deal of knowledge, but who don't have a lot of skill at teaching. And this is going to be one of those annoying questions where I, where I kind of make an assertion and I want to, I'm, I'm curious to get your observations on it. Sure. Like, okay, so here's an example of, of that that I've seen. Like, there's a series of books uh, O'Reilly has, um, the Headfirst series. Um, and I've been aware of them for Great years. Series, by the and way. Yeah. So I, you know, as a programmer, um, uh, so if you're not familiar with the series, um, they have these like sort of, uh, they have these, these covers that are like, like, like they're always like a photo of some like really perky looking person, um, who's looking up at the camera, um, you know, like all like ready to learn and stuff. And I always, you know, I used to look at them and sort of write them off in my head as like really cutesy and fluffy and, you know, like not serious programming learning material. And, um, recently I had reason to, to look through one at great length and I was really impressed with it. They do a lot with sort of mixing things up, mixed media, a lot of pictures, a lot of changing gears, a lot of, here's a, a quiz, here's a little game, here's a, a little, you know, inset box answering some questions. Here's a little box about some more advanced things, you know, and it's not a style that you see in a lot of programming books. Um, and I found out more recently that like they're sort of one of their, their rules for these books is to make the reader feel smart on every page. And, and I think that's one of the things that, you know, that my sort of snooty programmer brain uh, interpreted as, oh, this is cutesy and fluffy. So it's actually really good material, I thought, and way better than some of the, the dry programming uh, guides that I've read in the past. And I feel like we've got this in, in the programmer community and particularly like in the, in the sort of, you know, Unix worshiping Ruby community, Ruby Pearl, et cetera, community. We've got this monomaniacal focus on text as the, as the one true mediating format for all information. Um, you know, we all want to get back to the command line. GUIs are bad. IDEs are bad. UML is bad. Diagrams are bad. Mice are, are of the devil. And, you know, and it's all text, 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 text. And therefore, you know, books full of pictures and things are, are bad. I feel like this is a poverty among programmers. Like it's, it's not just about, you know, about teachers particularly or people that are writing books, but like the fact that we don't use mixed media to transmit our ideas at all, it seems like we're really shortchanging ourselves. I mean, do you feel the same? Do you feel anything like that? I have to agree with everything you said. Headfirst is one of the biggest 
uh, inspirations for my my video courses and now my mentoring course. The depth, like, okay, so I have the first book, which is Head First Java. And, you know, the first chapter is like, what is Java and that kind of thing. It seems very, very light, but it's like a 500-page book. You flip to the middle and they're talking about deep stuff that I don't know if I ever learned in school. Like, you actually trace through a garbage collection heap and you have to figure out what's going to be collected and what's not. This is not something that's taught in most Java books, right? Maybe they mention that, oh, it has garbage collection and they talk about, you know, like you're saying, text. They just explain, oh, it's a generational garbage collector and it's safe and whatever. But this is actually tracing through the execution of this garbage collector. And I'm just constantly surprised by the depth that they can go into while making it fun, while making it interactive. There's exercises every few pages. Um, there's actual like lines on the page to write in the book. There's pictures, there's little cartoons, there's visual metaphors, all of these things. Like you're saying, we just don't use them enough. We are focused more on getting the knowledge down. And there's this thing that happens where we are able to explain stuff technically so that it's correct. You know, we're very precise with our words. We uh, phrase it in a certain way. We use a lot of such that's and stuff like that so that we're saying exactly what we want to say, but it doesn't teach anybody. Yeah, it's, we're not conveying what we want to say. We're just it, saying it. We're exactly. teaching people who are exactly like us and not... Yes, you already know it. Corners. We're only... We can formalize. Exactly. And someone who already knows it will come and read it and say, yes, you're right. That's a good explanation. But no one who doesn't know it can make any sense of it. And that is, it's a huge failing that we value this, uh, this idea of being able to be totally precise with our language. And, and rightly so, like you have to be on a computer, uh, in a programming language, but we don't value visual metaphor which is a huge way of teaching. I mean, there's a, an explanation in, in Head First Java of pointers, and it's done with cartoons. And the ability to build up this visual language for um, explaining um, how you can have a variable that has a pointer to another object and that uh, the other things can point to the same object, but be a different variable. And how now you can have an array of pointers to objects. All of this stuff is done totally visually and it's instant understanding. You know, I talked about avoiding cognitive overload. Like this is how you avoid cognitive overload is you don't make them read three pages of text explaining what pointers are. You give them a, a metaphor that just instantly installs this understanding in their brain. Right. We're too busy talking to ourselves and we wonder why we have monocultures. Exactly. I mean, Kathy Sierra had a thing, and uh, she still talks about it in her talks, about how most, well, it, I, I think it's kind of judgmental to say this, but that, you know, if you focus on the way the book is started, meaning when the person, when the author had the idea for the book and the books that really succeed that actually do better are focused on the reader. They're focused on, I want the reader to learn X, Y, Z. And so you kind of have to read these paragraphs of obtuse text and say, oh, I have to redo this. This is not going to help the reader. 
And it's a shame. It's a shame that we, we start, we start our journey on writing a book with this idea of, you know, becoming famous for this topic. Yeah. I have kind of a follow on uh, to that, which is, and it's another of those things that I'm, I'm, I, I want to state it and, and get your take on it. I feel like, you know, this problem we have as programmers in, in teaching is, um, is a big deal, not just for the, the new pro- programmers that are coming up, but it's a problem, you know, for us doing our jobs. Cause I really feel like fundamentally, I mean, what we're doing, our job is, is basically just to learn it to teach. I mean, we're here to synthesize. We, we are here to, come in and understand a domain, understand a little closed universe that is, you know, somebody's problem. And we have to then convey that to the computer. We have to convey it to the other people on our team. We have to convey the, the facts of, and, and practicalities of the, of the computer back to the customer. You know, these are all, these are all learning and teaching processes. Um, and that's basically what we're doing all day. And, and that's why, like, you're totally right. Yeah. That is why programmers can actually make really awesome teachers is we understand that any skill can be broken down into steps and the decisions can be made mostly systematically, right? Even if there's some element of randomness in there, it's like, oh, well, just choose one. doesn't matter. That's like an algorithm, Right. We understand yeah. that. We, we do that every day. So I think that we can dominate teaching if we wanted to, but we need to, we need to do that. We need to work on the skills. Mm-hmm. Yes. Totally agree that in some ways you can look at programming as exactly teaching, teaching the computer, teaching the people to read our code or the people who come and later read our code, teach the people who use our user interface how to work with the software we're creating. It's all teaching at some level. For sure. It's all modeling. It's all about ideas. You know, the last thing is one of the problems with, with modern programming languages is that it's so much typing for, you have an idea that you develop with someone for a couple hours and then you try to type it and it's going to take you two weeks to type it all in. And it, it, the typing dominates the actual important part, which is to come up with the great model of the problem so that you can solve the end user use case. I think that's a great place to, to wrap this up. I, I, I completely agree. All right. Should we do some picks? Sure. All right. Before we get to picks, I want to take some time to thank our silver sponsors. This episode is sponsored by Code School. Code School is an online learning destination for existing and aspiring developers that teach us through entertaining content. They provide immersive video lessons with in-browser challenges, which means that each course has a unique theme and storyline and feels much more like a game. Whether you've been programming for a long time or have only just begun, Code School has something for everyone. You can master Ruby on Rails or JavaScript, as well as Git, HTML, CSS, and iOS. And more than a million people around the world use CodeSchool to improve their development skills by learning or doing. You can find more information at CodeSchool.com slash RubyRogues. Avdi, do you want to start us with picks? Sure. Uh, i got a few things saved up. I'll try to be quick. I, I don't think I picked InnoReader last time. I feel like I picked it somewhere, but I didn't see it in the history. Anyway, short version. I, like many people, am a Google, Google Reader refugee for my reading my RSS feeds. Went to Feedly like a lot of people did and got increasingly dissatisfied with it. Recently, I switched to InnoReader, and I don't really have like one reason that I switched to it. It was like two dozen different things that they just did better. So InnoReader is cool. Windows 10. It's what Windows 8.1 was trying to be. 
just uh, upgraded today and it's it's uh you know as a windows goes it's pretty darn good i just got back from helping out at one of sandy met's practical object oriented design workshops and i am biased because number one i really like sandy and number two when i get to help out with them i make money off of this but I will say that her courses are fantastic and, you know, very much apropos of this episode, I have learned so much about teaching from her, from watching her. She's done a lot of research into teaching methods. Uh, she does th stuff that like I, you know, stand back and think, wait, you can you can tell adults to do that. You know, and then I realize that techniques that work on kids work on adults, too. And they just like fixed something in their memory, which I would never have in a million years figured out how to completely fix in their memory. So it's just if you ever have a, the opportunity to, to take one of her courses, I highly recommend it. They're, they're super cool. And uh, the only other thing I'll say is that uh, I started a newsletter recently about it's weekly ish. And if that sounds interesting to you, um, I'll put a link in the show notes to the to the blog post where I introduced it. So uh, I think that's it for me. All right. Coraline, what are your picks? Um, my first pick. Um, not at all technical, but really interesting. It's an article in the New Statesman called Sex Isn't Chromosomes, the story of a misconception, a century misconception about X and Y. So we're all familiar about the, with the model of XX and XY chromosomes, but what the article describes is that it's actually founded on faulty principles. It's a simple concept complicated by the realities of biology and life. And the approach to chromosomes, breaking things down into a binary, has been responsible for encouraging reductive and essentialist thinking about sex. And the scientific world apparently has moved past this concept, but the popular appeal remains. So the article talks about a book by Sarah Richardson, who's an historian and philosopher of science. The book is called Sex Itself, The Search for Male and Female in the Human Genome. The book talks about a very public debate that happened between scientists in the early part of the 20th century, where the concept of sex chromosomes actually um, emerged and what happened in the intervening years. It's a comprehensive demolition of the very term sex chromosomes, a taxonomy that's about a century old and due for revision. So it was a really interesting read, obviously a subject close to my heart as it deals with sex and gender, but very interesting also from the perspective of what happens when a concept in science is popularized and its popularity outlives its usefulness. Um, my second pick is a book by Octavia Butler, who I've been reading a lot of lately, called Parable of the Sower. It's set in a future where government is all but collapsed. Um, it centers on a young woman named Lauren who possesses hyper-empathy, um, the ability to feel the perceived pain and sensations of others. In the book, civil society has been reverted to anarchy due to scarcity and poverty, and the main character develops a philosophical and religious system during her childhood and the remnants of a gated community in Los Angeles. When the community security is compromised, her home is destroyed, her family is murdered, and she travels north with some survivors to start a new community based on her religion. The novel won the 1994 Nebula Award for Best Novel. It's beautiful and moving post-apocalyptic novel with a really interesting philosophical twist. So Parable of a Sower by Octavia Butler, and I'll post a link to the Amazon page on that on the show notes. All right, Jessica, what are your picks? I've been reading Getting Things Done lately because I actually decided that I want to get organized, which is a big change for me and kind of a, a step up in my eventual adulthood. Uh, but what I want to pick is the Wonderlist app. It's a to-do list done really well. That's Wonderlist, W-U-N-D-E-R. It's also created by a really awesome company. Um, Chad Fowler has been leading the development team there. Even though it, it's now owned by Microsoft, it's still awesome. 
I pick Wonderlist already? I think I did, but you know what? I'm picking it again because it totally goes really well with getting things done and sort of creating organization in my life so that I can stop running through all the things that I need to do in my head when I'm in the shower. I would rather reserve the shower for ideas. Uh, my second pick is a podcast. It's Partially Examined Life. It's a philosophy podcast uh, that basically goes over like classical philosophy text, but you don't actually have to read the text. You can just hear them talking about it and then like have a clue when other people talk to me about philosophy. Now I kind of like have some context and can speak intelligently about it. And it's uh, you can pick it up anywhere. The episodes are pretty independent and it's pretty entertaining. Those are my picks. All right. I've got a couple of picks. Um, so last Friday, I was given the opportunity to talk to this together tech. It's actually a uh, it's a boot camp in Cape Town, South Africa, and uh, they bring in underprivileged uh, people and teach them to code. It's a nine month boot camp. And uh, awesome. they go out of their way to actually find people who don't have a lot of or any computer background and what they're trying to do is they're trying to create role models in the community that, you know, have steady work and, you know, can contribute financially to the area. And so uh, it's really, really cool. And yeah, I, I just got to talk to him for an hour and it was amazing. So I just want to uh, throw that out there because they are doing great work. Um, I was actually invited by one of their founders to speak to them. And this all came off of the Daniel Kehoe episode and uh, the Rails Composer Kickstarter. He backed it and then he asked if I would come and talk to him. He backed it and got some Rails clips months. So anyway, the next one is, this is something I've been thinking about lately. So it's one of those, there's no link for this. There's no book for this. It's just something that I've been thinking about. But just being intentional, just thinking about, where you want to wind up, especially uh, within the last few days. I've been thinking about this with my kids and with my business and just thinking about, okay, if nothing changes, if nothing advances within the next five years, where do I want to be? And then what are the principles behind that? And how do I, how do I actually, you know, enact the parts of this that are critical to that? And, you know, and then I can continue to assess and evaluate as time goes on. But uh, I found that a lot of times we kind of go on to autopilot for a lot of things. And we just expect that we'll pick up what we need to pick up and that things will just kind of work out because they worked out for our parents or worked out for other people that we know. And I find that in a lot of cases, I really have to pay attention to where I want to wind up. And then I have to work toward that and be very intentional about moving toward it. So anyway, I'll get off the soapbox because this is already a long show. But that's that's one thing that I've really been thinking about. The next pick is High Rise. Now, High Rise was written by 37 Signals. They sold it off. Anyway, it's it's pretty awesome CRM. And so uh, I, I've been using it and I'm really liking it. So I'll go ahead and pick that. Uh, just keep in mind, it is not is no longer owned by Basecamp. Somebody else is running it, but it works great for me. And then the last pick I have is a podcast episode, The Eventual Millionaire Podcast by Jamie Tardy. It is awesome, and I listen to every episode that I can. The idea is, is that she interviews millionaires uh, about basically how they do things so that to help other people become millionaires is kind of the idea behind it. But she interviewed a guy named Rory Vaden about three weeks ago. And it was awesome. And he, he really had some things. If you're do if you're in business for yourself or you find yourself doing a lot of different kind of mundane tasks, then this is kind of an, an outlook on things uh, that allows you to put off the right things, work on the important things and delegate the things that you don't have to be doing. 
So anyway, I it kind of blew my mind. <laughs> so I'm going to pick that episode. Eric, do you have some picks for us? Uh, yes, I do. My first pick is a podcast as well. It's called Ruby Rogues. And Never heard I, of it. I know it's kind of obscure. Uh, You guys wouldn't have heard of it, but uh, I really like it. I'm a big fan and I try to listen as much as I can. I don't always understand because I'm not really in the Ruby world, but great hosts, great guests. So thank you for that. My second pick is it's a YouTube channel that someone has been posting all these old Alan Kay talks. Um, One of them is from 1972. It's amazing that he's been speaking for so long and it's basically the same topics that he's been talking about. And the other thing about Alan Kay is you have to listen to the same ideas over and over because they're so deep. Like I, when I first started listening to him, I didn't really understand what he was talking about. But because he gives similar talks over and over, same topics, you start to get what's going on. So it's nice that there's like now a channel that you can just put on autoplay and listen to all of that. My next pick, a book called uh, Mindstorms. Mindstorms is Seymour Papert's book about his research at MIT into the logo programming language and how it can help uh, education. I know there's a lot of talk these days about learning how to code and we need to all learn how to code. And his point in using computers in education wasn't that programming in itself should be the aim. It's that Sort of like what we were talking about, uh, making models. If you can make a model on a computer, you are actually cementing your understanding. And by playing with that model, debugging it, you're actually thinking about thinking. So this book talks about uh, how that can be and his explorations of different kinds of things you can teach using Logo, you know, back in the day. Awesome. All right. Well, uh, let's go ahead and wrap up the show. Uh, Thank you for coming, Eric. Thank you so much. It was a big pleasure. So fascinating to talk about, too. But yeah, we'll wrap up the show. We'll catch everyone next week. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Bandwidth for this segment is provided by Cashfly, the world's fastest CDN. Deliver your content fast with Cashfly. Visit C-A-C-H-E-F-L-Y.com to learn more. Would you like to join a conversation with the rogues and their guests? Want to support the show? We have a forum that allows you to join the conversation and support the show at the same time. You can sign up at rubyrogues.com slash parlay.